0: THE WISDOM OF THE ANCIENTS by Sir Francis Bacon Originally published in 1609. Preface The earliest antiquity lies buried in silence and oblivion, except the remains we have of it in sacred writ. The silence was succeeded by poetical fables, and these at length by the writings we now enjoy. So that the concealed and secret learning of the ancients seems separated from the history and knowledge of the following ages by a veil or partition wall of fables, interposing between the things that are lost and those that remain. Many may imagine that I am here entering upon a work of fancy or amusement, and designed to use a poetical liberty in explaining poetical fables. It is true, fables in general, are composed of ductile matter, that may be drawn into great variety by a witty talent, or an inventive genius, and be delivered of plausible meanings, which they never contained. But this procedure has already been carried to excess, and great numbers, to procure the sanction of antiquity to their own notions and inventions have miserably rested and abused the fables of the ancients. Nor is this only a late or unfrequent practice, but of ancient date and common even to this day. Thus Chrysippus, like an interpreter of dreams, attributed the opinions of the Stoics to the poets of old. And the chemists, at present, more childishly apply the poetical transformations to their experiments of the furnace. And though I have well weighed and considered all this, and thoroughly seen into the levity which the mind indulges for allegories and illusions, yet I cannot but retain a high value for the ancient mythology. And certainly, it were very injudicious to suffer the fondness and licentiousness of a few to detract from the honor of allegory and parable in general." This would be rash and almost profane, for since religion delights in such shadows and disguises, to abolish them were, in a manner, to prohibit all intercourse betwixt things divine and human. Upon deliberate consideration, my judgment is that a concealed instruction and allegory was originally intended in many of the ancient fables. This opinion may, in some respect, be owing to the veneration I have for antiquity, but more to observing that some fables discover a great and evident similitude, relation, and connection with the thing they signify, as well in the structure of the fable as in the propriety of the names whereby the persons or actors, are characterized, insomuch that no one could positively deny a sense and meaning to be from the first intended, and purposely shadowed out in them. For who can hear that fame, after the giants were destroyed, sprung up as their posthumous sister, and not apply it to the clamor of parties and the seditious rumors which commonly fly about for a time upon the quelling of insurrections. Or who can read how the giant Typhon cut out and carried away Jupiter's sinews, which Mercury afterwards stole and again restored to Jupiter, and not presently observed that this allegory denotes strong and powerful rebellions, which cut away from kings their sinews, both of money and authority and that the way to have them restored is by lenity, affability, and prudent edicts, which soon reconcile and, as it were, steal upon the affections of the subject. Or who, upon hearing that memorable expeditions of the gods against the giants, when the braying of Silenus' ass greatly contributed in putting the giants to flight, does not clearly conceive that this directly points at the monstrous enterprises of rebellious subjects, which are frequently frustrated and disappointed by vain fears and empty rumors. Again, the conformity and purport of the names is frequently manifest and self-evident. Thus, Metis, the wife of Jupiter, plainly signifies counsel, typhon, swelling, pan, universality, nemesis, revenge, and etc. Nor is it a wonder if sometimes a piece of history or other things are introduced by way of ornament, or if the times of the action are confounded, or if part of one fable be tacked to another, or if the allegory be new, turned, for all this must necessarily happen as the fables were the inventions of men who lived in different ages and had different views, some of them being ancient, others more modern, some having an eye to natural philosophy, and others to morality or civil policy. It may pass for a further indication of a concealed and secret meaning, that some of these fables are so absurd and idle in their narration as to show and proclaim an allegory, even afar off. A fable that carries probability with it may be supposed invented for pleasure, or in imitation of history. But those that could never be conceived or related in this way must surely have a different use. For example, what a monstrous fiction is this, that Jupiter should take Metis to wife, And as soon as he found her pregnant, eat her up, whereby he also conceived, and out of his head brought forth Pallas, armed. Certainly no mortal could, but for the sake of the moral it couches, invent such an absurd dream as this, so much out of the road of thought. But the argument of most weight with me is this that many of these fables by no means appear to have been invented by the persons who relate and divulge them, whether Homer, Hesiod, or others. For if I were assured they first flowed from these later times, and authors that transmit them to us, I should never expect anything singularly great or noble from such an origin. But whoever attentively considers the thing find that these fables are delivered down and related by those writers, not as matters then first invented and proposed, but as things received and embraced in earlier ages. Besides, as they are differently related by writers nearly of the same ages, it is easily perceived that the relators drew from the common stock of ancient tradition, and varied but in point of embellishment, which is their own. And this principally raises my esteem of these fables, which I receive not as the product of the age or invention of the poets, but as sacred relics, gentle whispers, and the breath of better times, that from the traditions of more ancient nations came at length into the flutes and trumpets of the Greeks. But if anyone shall... Notwithstanding this, contend that allegories are always adventitious, or imposed upon the ancient fables, and no way native or genuinely contained in them, we might here leave him undisturbed in that gravity of judgment he affects, though we cannot help accounting it somewhat dull and phlegmatic, and if it were worth the trouble, proceed to another kind of argument." Men have proposed to answer two different and contrary ends by the use of parable, for parables serve as well to instruct or illustrate as to wrap up and envelop, so that though for the present we drop the concealed use and suppose the ancient fables to be vague, indeterminate things formed for amusement, still the other use must remain and can never be given up. And every man of any learning must readily allow that this method of instructing is grave, sober, or exceedingly useful and sometimes necessary in the sciences as it opens an easy and familiar passage to the human understanding in all new discoveries that are abstruse and out of the road of vulgar opinions. Hence, in the first ages when such inventions and conclusions of the human reason, as are now trite and common, were new and little known, all things abounded with fables, parables, similes, comparisons, and illusions, which were not intended to conceal, but to inform and teach, whilst the minds of men continued rude and unpracticed, in matters of subtlety and speculation, or even impatient, and in a manner incapable of receiving such things, as did not fall directly under and strike the senses. For as hieroglyphics were in use before writing, so were parables in use before arguments. And even to this day, if any man would let new light in upon the human understanding, and conquer prejudice, without raising contests, animosities, opposition, or disturbance, he must still go in the same path, and have recourse to the method of allegory, metaphor, and illusion. To conclude, the knowledge of the early ages was either great or happy, great if they by design made this use of trope and figure happy if whilst they had other views, they afforded matter and occasion to such noble contemplations. Let either be the case. Our pains, perhaps, will not be misemployed whether we illustrate antiquity or things themselves. The like, indeed, has been attempted by others. But, to speak ingeniously, their great and voluminous labors have almost destroyed the energy, the efficacy, and grace of the thing. Whilst being unskilled in nature, and their learning no more than that of commonplace, they have applied the sense of the parables to certain general and vulgar matters, without reaching to their real purport, genuine interpretation, and full depth. For myself, therefore, I expect to appear new in these common things, because, leaving untouched, such as are sufficiently plain and open, I shall drive only at those that are either deep or rich. The Wisdom of the Ancients A Series of Mythological Fables Most of these fables are contained in Ovid's Metamorphosis and Fasti and are fully explained in Bohn's Classical Library Translation. 1. Cassandra, or Divination Explained of too free and unseasonable advice. The poets relate that Apollo, falling in love with Cassandra, was still deluded and put off by her, yet fed with hopes till she had got from him The gift of prophecy, and having now obtained her end, she flatly rejected his suit. Apollo, unable to recall his rash gift, yet enraged to be outwitted by a girl, annexed this penalty to it, that though she should always prophecy true, she should never be believed, whence her divinations were always slighted and even when she again and again predicted the ruin of her country. Explanation This fable seems invented to express the insignificance of unseasonable advice. For they who are conceited, stubborn, or intractable, and listen not to the instructions of Apollo, the god of harmony, so, as to learn and observe the modulations and measures of affairs, the sharps and flats of discourse, the difference between judicious and vulgar ears, and the proper times of speech and silence, let them be ever so intelligent and ever so frank in their advice, or their counsels ever so good and just, yet all their endeavors. Either of persuasion or force, are of little significance, and rather hasten the ruin of those they advise. But at last, when the calamitous event has made the sufferers feel the effect of their neglect, they too late reverence their advisers as deep, foreseeing, and faithful prophets. Of this we have a remarkable instance in Cato of Utica who discovered afar off, and long foretold, the approaching ruin of his country, both in the first conspiracy, and as it was prosecuted in the civil war between Caesar and Pompey, yet did no good the while, but rather hurt the commonwealth, and hurried on its destruction, which Cicero wisely observed in these words, Cato, indeed, judges excellently, but prejudices the state, for he speaks as in the commonwealth of Plato, and not as in the dregs of Romulus. 2. Typhon, or a rebel. Explained of Rebellion The fable runs that Juno, enraged at Jupiter's bringing forth Pallas without her assistance, incessantly solicited all the gods and goddesses that she might produce without Jupiter. And having by violence and importunity obtained the grant, she struck the earth and thence immediately sprang up Typhon, a huge and dreadful monster whom she committed to the nursing of a serpent. As soon as he was grown up, this monster waged war on Jupiter, and taking him prisoner in the battle, carried him away on his shoulders into a remote and obscure quarter, and there, cutting out the sinews of his hands and feet, he bore them off, leaving Jupiter behind miserably maimed and mangled. But Mercury afterwards stole these sinews from Typhon and restored them to Jupiter, hence, recovering his strength Jupiter again pursues the monster, first wounds him with the stroke of his thunder. When serpents arose from the blood of the wound, and now the monster being dismayed and taking to flight, Jupiter next darted Mount Etna upon him and crushed him with the weight. Explanation This fable seems designed to express the various fates of kings, And the turns that rebellions sometimes take in kingdoms. For princes may be justly esteemed married to their states as Jupiter to Juno. But it sometimes happens that being depraved by long wielding of the sceptre and growing tyrannical, they would engross all to themselves, and slighting the counsel of their senators and nobles, conceive by themselves, that is, govern according to their own arbitrary will and pleasure. This inflames the people and makes them endeavor to create and set up some head of their own. Such designs are generally set on foot by the secret motion and instigation of the peers and nobles, under whose connivance the common sort are prepared for rising. Whence proceeds a swell in the state which is appositely denoted by the nursing of Typhon. This growing posture of affairs is fed by the natural depravity and malignant dispositions of the vulgar, which to kings is an envenomed serpent. And now the disaffected, uniting their force at length, break out into open rebellion, which producing infinite mischiefs, both to prince and people, is represented by the horrid and multiplied deformity of Typhon, with his hundred heads, denoting the divided powers, his flaming mouths, denoting fire and devastation, his girdles of snakes, denoting sieges and destruction, his iron hands, slaughter and cruelty, his eagle's talons, rapine and plunder, his plumed body, perpetual rumors, contradictory accounts, and etc. And sometimes these rebellions grow so high that kings are obliged, as if carried on the backs of the rebels, to quit the throne and retire to some remote and obscure part of their dominions with the loss of their sinews, both of money and majesty. But if now they prudently bear this reverse of fortune They may, in a short time, by the assistance of Mercury, recover their sinews again, that is, by becoming moderate and affable, reconciling the minds and affections of the people to them, by gracious speeches and prudent proclamations, which will win over the subject cheerfully to afford new aids and supplies and add fresh vigor to authority. But prudent and wary princes here seldom incline to try fortune by a war, yet do their utmost by some grand exploit to crush the reputation of the rebels. And if the attempt succeeds, the rebels, conscious of the wound received and distrustful of their cause, first betake themselves to broken and empty threats like the hissings of serpents. And next... When matters are grown desperate to flight, and now, when they thus begin to shrink, it is safe and seasonable for kings to pursue them with their forces, and the whole strength of the kingdom, thus effectually quashing and suppressing them, as it were, by the weight of a mountain. 3. The Cyclops, or the Ministers of Terror explained of base court officers. It is related that the Cyclops, for their savageness and cruelty, were by Jupiter first thrown into Tartarus, and there condemned to perpetual imprisonment, but that afterwards Tellus persuaded Jupiter it would be for his service to release them and employ them in forging thunderbolts. This he accordingly did, And they, with unwearied pains and diligence, hammered out his bolts and other instruments of terror with a frightful and continual din of the anvil. It happened long after that Jupiter was displeased with Asclepius, the son of Apollo, for having, by the art of medicine, restored a dead man to life. But concealing his indignation, because the action in itself was pious and illustrious, he secretly incensed the Cyclops against him, who without remorse presently slew him with their thunderbolts. In revenge thereof, Apollo, with Jupiter's connivance, shot them all dead with his arrows. Explanation This fable seems to point at the behavior of princes who, having cruel, bloody, and oppressive ministers, first punish and displace them, but afterwards, by the advice of Telus, that is, some earthly-minded and ignoble person, employ them again to serve a turn, when there is occasion for cruelty in execution, or severity in exaction. But these ministers, being base in their nature, wet by their former disgrace, and well aware of what is expected from them, use double diligence in their office, till proceeding unwarily and over-eager to gain favor, they sometimes, from the private nods and ambiguous orders of their prince, perform some odious or execrable action. When princes, to decline the envy themselves, and knowing they shall never want such tools at their back, drop them, and give them up to the friends and followers of the injured person, thus exposing them as sacrifices to revenge and popular odium. Whence, with great applause, acclamations, and good wishes to the prince, these miscreants at last meet with their desert. 4. Narcissus, or Self-Love Narcissus is said to have been extremely beautiful and comely, but intolerably proud and disdainful, so that, pleased with himself and scorning the world, he led a solitary life in the woods, hunting only with a few followers who were his professed admirers, amongst whom the nymph Echo was his constant attendant. In this method of life, It was once his fate to approach a clear fountain, where he laid himself down to rest in the noonday heat, when, beholding his image in the water, he fell into such a rapture, and admiration of himself, that he could by no means be got away, but remained continually fixed and gazing till at length. He was turned into a flower, of his own name, which appears early in the spring and is consecrated to the infernal deities, Pluto, Porcupine, and the Furies. EXPLANATION This fable seems to paint the behavior and fortune of those who, for their beauty or other endowments, whereas wherewith nature, without any industry of their own, has graced and adorned them, are extravagantly fond of themselves, For men of such a disposition generally affect retirement and absence from public affairs, as a life of business must necessarily subject them to many neglects and contempts, which might disturb and ruffle their minds. Whence such persons commonly lead a solitary, private, and shadowy life, see little company and those only such as highly admire and reverence them, or like an echo, assent to all, they say. And they who are depraved and rendered still fonder of themselves by this custom grow strangely indolent, inactive, and perfectly stupid. The Narcissus, a spring flower, is an elegant emblem of this temper, which at first flourishes and is talked of, but when ripe frustrates the expectation conceived of it. And that this flower should be sacred to the infernal powers carries out the illusion still further, because men of this humor are perfectly useless in all respects, for whatever yields no fruit, but passes and is no more, like the way of a ship in the sea, was by the ancients consecrated to the infernal shades and powers. 5. The River Styx Or leagues, explained of necessity in the Oaths or Solemn Leagues of Princes. The only solemn oath by which the gods irrevocably oblige themselves is a well known thing and makes a part of many ancient fables. To this oath they did not invoke any celestial divinity or divine attribute, but only called to witness the river Styx, which with many meanders, surrounds the infernal court of dis. For this form alone, and none but this, was held inviolable and obligatory, and the punishment of falsifying it was that dreaded one of being excluded for a number of years the table of the gods. Explanation. This fable seems invented to show the nature of the compacts and confederacy of princes, which, though ever so solemnly and religiously sworn to, prove but little the more binding for it. So that oaths, in this case, seem used rather for decorum, reputation, and ceremony than for fidelity, security, and effectuating. And though these oaths were strengthened with the bonds of affinity, which were, which are the links and ties of nature, and again by mutual services and good offices. Yet we see all this will generally give way to ambition, convenience, and the thirst of power. The rather, because it is easy for princes, under various specious pretenses, to defend, disguise, and conceal their ambitious desires and insincerity, having no judge to call them to account. There is, however, one true and proper confirmation of their faith, though no celestial divinity, but that great divinity of princes' necessity, or the danger of the state and the securing of advantage. This necessity is elegantly represented by sticks the fatal river that can never be crossed back. And this deity it was, which Iphicrates the Athenian invoked in making a league. And because he roundly and openly avows that most others studiously conceal, it may be proper to give his own words. Observing that the Lacedomanians were inventing and proposing a variety of securities sanctions and bonds of alliance, he interrupted them thus. There may, indeed, my friends, be one bond and means of security between us, and that is, for you to demonstrate you have delivered into our hands such things as that, if you had the greatest desire to hurt us, you could not be able. Therefore, if the power of offending be taken away, or if by a breach of compact there be danger of destruction or diminution to the state or tribute, then it is that covenants will be ratified and confirmed, as it were, by the Stygian oath, whilst there remains an impending danger of being prohibited and excluded the banquet of the gods, by which expression the ancients denoted the rights and prerogatives, the influence and the felicities of empire and empire. And dominion. 6. Pan or Nature. Footnote Homer's Hymn to Pan. Explained of Natural Philosophy. The ancients have, with great exactness, delineated universal nature under the person of Pan. They leave his origin doubtful some asserting him the son of Mercury, and others the common offspring of all Penelope's suitors. The latter supposition doubtless occasioned some later rivals to entitle this ancient fable Penelope, a thing frequently practiced when the earlier relations are applied to more modern characters and persons, though sometimes with great absurdity and ignorance, as in the present case. For Pan was one of the ancientest gods, and long before the time of Ulysses. Besides, Penelope was venerated by antiquity for her matronal chastity. A third sort will have him the issue of Jupiter and Hybris, that is, reproach. But whatever his origin was, the destinies are allowed his sisters. He is described by antiquity with pyramidal horns reaching up to heaven, a rough and shaggy body, a very long beard, a biform figure, human above, half brute below, ending in goat's feet. His arms, or ensigns of power, are a pipe in his left hand, composed of seven reeds, in his right a crook, and he wore for his mantle a leopard's skin. His attributes and titles were the god of hunters, shepherds, and all the rural inhabitants, president of the mountains, and after Mercury, the next messenger of the gods. He was also held the leader and ruler of the nymphs, who continually danced and frisked about him, attended with the satyrs and their elders, the Selene. He had also the power of striking terrors, especially as such as were vain and superstitious, whence they came to be called panic terrors. Few actions are recorded of him. Only a principal one is that he challenged Cupid at wrestling and was worsted. He also catched the giant Typhon in a net, and held him fast. They relate further of him, that when Ceres, growing disconsolate for the rape of Porcupine, hid herself, and all the gods took the utmost pains to find her, by going out different ways for that purpose, Pan only had the good fortune to meet her, as he was hunting, and discovered her to the rest. He likewise had the assurance to rival Apollo in music and in the judgment of Midas was preferred. But the judge had, though with great privacy and secrecy, a pair of ass's ears fastened on him for his sentence. There is very little said of his amours, which may seem strange among such a multitude of gods, so profusely amorous. He is only reported to have been very fond of echo, was also esteemed by his wife. And one nymph, more, called Syrinx, with the love of whom Cupid inflamed him for his insolent challenge. So he is reported once to have solicited the moon to accompany him apart into the deep woods. Lastly, Pan had no descendant, which also is a wonder when the male gods were so extremely prolific, only he was the reputed father of a servant girl called Iamb, who used to divert strangers with her ridiculous, prattling stories. This fable is perhaps the noblest of all antiquity, and pregnant with the mysteries and secrets of nature. Pan, as the name imports, represents the universe, about whose origin there are two opinions, viz. that it either sprung from mercury, that is, the divine word, according to the scriptures and philosophical divines, or from the confused seeds of things. For they who allow only one beginning of all things either ascribe it to God, or if they suppose a material beginning, acknowledge it to be various in its powers, so that the whole dispute comes to these points, viz., either that nature proceeds from Mercury or from Penelope and all her suitors. The third origin of Pan seems borrowed by the Greeks from the Hebrew mysteries, either by means of the Egyptians or otherwise, for it relates to the state of the world, not in its first creation, but as made subject to death and corruption after the fall. And in this state it was, and remains, the offspring of God and sin, or Jupiter and reproach. And therefore these three several accounts of Pan's birth may seem true, if duly distinguished in respect of things and times. For this Pan, or the universal nature of things, which we view and contemplate, had its origin from the divine word and confused matter, first created by God Himself, with the subsequent introduction of sin, and consequently corruption. The destinies, or the natures and fates of things, are justly made Pan's sisters. As the chain of natural causes links together the rise, duration, and corruption, the exaltation, degeneration, and workings, the processes, the effects, and changes, all of that can any way happen to things. Horns are given him, broad at the roots, but narrow and sharp at the top, because the nature of all things seems pyramidal, for individuals are infinite but being collected into a variety of species, they rise up into kinds, and these again ascend, and are contracted into generals, till at length nature may seem collected to a point. And no wonder if Pan's horns reach to the heavens, since the sublimities of nature, or abstract ideas, reach in a manner to things divine. For there is a short and ready passage from metaphysics, to Natural Theology. Pan's body, or the body of nature, is, with great propriety and elegance, painted shaggy and hairy, as representing the rays of things. For rays are as the hair or fleece of nature, and more or less worn by all bodies. This evidently appears in vision, and in all effects and operations at a distance, for whatever operates thus may be properly said to emit rays. But particularly the beard of Pan is exceeding long, because the rays of the celestial bodies penetrate and act to a prodigious distance, and have descended into the interior of the earth, so far as to change its surface. And the sun himself, when clouded on its upper part, appears to the eye bearded. Again, the body of nature is justly described by form because of the difference between its superior and inferior parts, as the former, for their beauty, regularity of motion, and influence over the earth, may be properly represented by the human figure, and the latter, because of their disorder, irregularity, And subjection to the celestial bodies are by the brutal. This biform figure also represents the participation of one species with another. For there appear to be no simple natures, but all participate or consist of two. Thus, man has somewhat of the brute, the brute somewhat of the plant, the plant somewhat of the mineral so that all natural bodies have really two faces, or consist of a superior and inferior species. There lies a curious allegory in the making of Pan goat-footed, on account of the motion of ascent, which the terrestrial bodies have towards the air and heavens. For the goat is a clambering creature, that delights in climbing up rocks and precipices, and in the same manner The matters destined to this lower globe strongly affect to rise upwards, as appears from the clouds and meteors. Pan's arms, or the ensigns he bears in his hands, are of two kinds, the one an emblem of harmony, the other of empire. His pipe, composed of seven reeds, plainly denotes the consent and harmony, or concords and discords of things produced by the motion of the seven planets. His crook, also, contains a fine representation of the ways of nature, which are partly straight and partly crooked. Thus the staff, having an extraordinary bend towards the top, denotes that the works of divine providence are generally brought about by remote means, or in a circuit, as if someone else were intended rather than the effect produced as in the sending of Joseph into Egypt, and etc. So likewise in human government, they who sit at the helm manage and wind the people more successfully by pretext and oblique courses than they could by such as are direct and straight, so that, in effect, all scepters are crooked at the top. Pan's mantle, or clothing, is with great ingenuity made of leopard skin, because of the spots it has. For in like manner the heavens are sprinkled with stars, the sea with islands, the earth with flowers, and almost each particular thing is variegated, or wears a mottled coat. The office of Pan could not be more livelily expressed than by making him the god of hunters. For every natural action... Every motion and process is no other than a chase. Thus arts and sciences hunt out their works, and human schemes and counsels their several ends. And all living creatures either hunt out their aliment, pursue their prey, or seek their pleasures, and this in a skillful and sagacious manner. He is also styled the god of the rural inhabitants, Because men in this situation live more according to nature than they do in cities and courts, where nature is so corrupted with effeminate arts that the saying of the poet may be verified. Pars minima est ipsa puella sui. Ovid. He is likewise particularly styled President of the Mountains because in mountains and lofty places the nature of things lies more open and exposed to the eye and the understanding. In his being called the messenger of the gods, next after Mercury, lies a divine allegory, as next after the word of God, the image of the world is the herald of the divine power and wisdom according to the expression of the psalmist. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Psalm 19 Pan is delighted with the company of the nymphs, that is, the souls of all living creatures are the delight of the world. And he is properly called their governor, because each of them follows its own nature, as a leader, and all dance about their own respective rings with infinite variety and never-ceasing motion. And with these continually join the satyrs and seleni, that is, youth and age, for all things have a kind of young, cheerful, and dancing time, and again their time of slowness, tottering, and creeping. And whoever, in a true light, Considers the motions and endeavors of both these ages like another Democritus, will perhaps find them as odd and strange as the gesticulations and antic motions of the satyrs and sileni. The power he had of striking terrors contains a very sensible doctrine, for nature has implanted fear in all living creatures, as well to keep them from risking their lives as to guard against injuries and violence. And yet this nature, or passion, keeps not its bounds, but with just and profitable fears always mixes such as are vain and senseless, so that all things, if we could see their insides, would appear full of panic terrors. Thus mankind, particularly the vulgar, labor under a high degree of superstition, which is nothing more than a panic dread that principally reigns in unsettled and troublesome times. The presumption of Pan in challenging Cupid to the conflict denotes that matter has an appetite and tendency to a dissolution of the world and falling back to its first chaos again unless this depravity and inclination were restrained and subdued by a more powerful concord and agreement of things, properly expressed by love, or Cupid. It is therefore well for mankind and the state of all things that Pan was thrown and conquered in the struggle. His catching and detaining Typhon in the net receives a similar explanation. For whatever vast and unusual swells which the word typhon signifies, may sometimes be raised in nature, as in the sea, the clouds, the earth, or the like. Yet nature catches and tangles and holds all such outrages and insurrections in her inextricable net, wove, as it were, of adamant. That part of the fable, which attributes the discovery of lost, of lost Ceres to Pan, Whilst he was hunting, a happiness denied the other gods, though they diligently and expressly sought her, contains an exceeding just and prudent admonition, viz. that we are not to expect the discovery of things useful in common life as that of corn, denoted by Ceres from abstract philosophies, as if these were the gods of the first order." No, though we used our utmost endeavors this way, but only from Pan, that is a sagacious experience and general knowledge of nature, which is often found, even by accident, to stumble upon such discoveries whilst the pursuit was directed another way. The event of his contending with Apollo in music affords us a useful instruction, that may help to humble the human reason and judgment, which is too apt to boast and glory itself. There seem to be two kinds of harmony, the one of divine providence, the other of human reason. But the government of the world, the administration of its affairs, and the more secret divine judgment sound harsh and dissonant to human ears or human judgment. And though this ignorance be justly rewarded with asses' ears, yet they are put on and worn, not openly, but with great secrecy, nor is the deformity of the thing seen or observed by the vulgar. We must not find it strange if no amours or related of Pan besides his marriage with Echo, for nature enjoys itself, and in itself all other things." He that loves desires enjoyment, but in profusion there is no room for desire. And therefore Pan, remaining content with himself, has no passion unless it be for discourse, which is well shadowed out by echo or talk, or when it is more accurate, by syrinx or writing. But echo makes a most excellent wife for Pan, as being no other than genuine philosophy, which faithfully repeats his words, or only transcribes exactly as nature dictates, thus representing the true image and reflection of the world without adding a tittle. It tends also to the support and perfection of Pan, or nature, to be without offspring, for the world generates in its parts, and not in the way of a whole, or as wanting a body external to itself, wherewith to generate. Lastly, for the supposed or spurious prattling daughter of Pan, it is an excellent addition to the fable, and aptly represents the talkative philosophies that have at all times been stirring and filled the world with idle tales, being ever barren, empty, and servile, though sometimes indeed diverting, and entertaining, and sometimes, again, troublesome and importunate. 7. Perseus, or War Explained of the preparation and conduct necessary to war. Quote, The fable relates that Perseus was dispatched from the East by Pallas to cut off Medusa's head, who had committed great ravage upon the people of the West. For this Medusa was so dire a monster as to turn into stone all those who but looked upon her. She was a Gorgon, and the only mortal one of the three, the other two being invulnerable. Perseus, therefore, preparing himself for this grand enterprise had presents made him from three of the gods. Mercury gave him wings for his heels, Pluto a helmet, and Pallas a shield and a mirror. But though he was now so well equipped he posted not directly to Medusa, but first turned aside to the Grey, who were half-sisters to the Gorgons. These Grey were grey-headed and like old women from their birth, having among them all three but one eye and one tooth, which as they had occasion to go out, they each tore by turns and laid them down again upon coming back. This eye and this tooth they lent to Perseus, who now judging himself sufficiently furnished, he, without further stop, flies swiftly away to Medusa and finds her asleep. But not venturing his eyes, for fear she should wake, he turned his head aside, and viewed her in Pallas's mirror, and thus directing his stroke, cut off her head, when immediately from the gushing blood, there darted Pegasus, winged. Perseus now inserted Medusa's head into Pallas's shield, which thence retained the faculty of astonishing and benumbing all who looked on it. From Ovid, Book 4 This fable seems invented to show the prudent method of choosing, undertaking, and conducting a war, and accordingly lays down three useful precepts about it, as if they were the precepts of Pallas. The first is that no prince should ever be over solicitous, to subdue a neighboring nation, for the method of enlarging an empire is very different from that of increasing an estate. Regard is justly had to contiguity, or adjacency, in private lands and possessions, but in the extending of empire, the occasion, the facility, and advantage of a war are to be regarded instead of vicinity. It is certain that the Romans, at the time they stretched but little beyond Liguria to the west, had by their arms subdued the provinces as far as Mount Taurus, to the east, and thus Perseus readily undertook a very long expedition, even from the east to the extremities of the west. The second precept is that the cause of the war be just and honorable for this adds alacrity both to the soldiers and the people who find the supplies, procures aids, alliances, and numerous other conveniences. Now there is no cause of war more just and laudable than the suppressing of tyranny, by which a people are dispirited, benumbed, or left without life and vigor, as at the sight of Medusa. Lastly, it is prudently added that, as there were three of the Gorgons who represent war, Perseus singled her out for this expedition that was mortal, which affords this precept, that such kind of wars should be chose as may be brought to a conclusion without pursuing vast and infinite hopes. Again, Perseus's setting out is extremely well adapted to his undertaking and in a manner command success. He received dispatch from Mercury, secrecy from Pluto, and foresight from Pallas. It also contains an excellent allegory that the wings given him by Mercury were for his heels, not for his shoulders, because expedition is not so much required in the first preparations for war as in the subsequent matters That administer to the first. For there is no error more frequent in war than, after brisk preparations, to halt for subsidiary forces and effective supplies. The allegory of Pluto's helmet, rendering men invisible and secret, is sufficiently evident of itself. But the mystery of the shield and the mirror lies deeper and denotes that not only a prudent caution must be had to defend, like the shield, but also such an address and penetration as may discover the strength, the motions, the counsels and designs of the enemy, like the mirror of Pallas. But though Perseus may now seem extremely well prepared, there still remains the most important thing of all, Before he enters upon the war, he must of necessity consult the Greyi. These Greyi are treasons, half but degenerate sisters of the Gorgons, who are representatives of wars, for wars are generous and noble, but treasons base and vile. The Greyi are elegantly described as hoary-headed, and like old women from their birth, on account of the perpetual cares fears, and trepidations attending traitors. Their force also, before it breaks out into open revolt, consists either in an eye or a tooth, for all faction alienated from a state is both watchful and biting. And this eye and tooth are, as it were, common to all the disaffected, because whatever they learn and know is transmitted from one to another, as by the hands of faction. And for the tooth, they all bite with the same, and clamor with one throat, so that each of them singly expresses the multitude. These greye therefore, must be prevailed upon by Perseus to lend him their eye and their tooth, the eye to give him indications and make discoveries, the tooth for sowing rumors raising envy, and stirring up the minds of the people. And when all these things are thus disposed and prepared, then follows the action of the war. He finds Medusa asleep, for whoever undertakes a war with prudence generally falls upon the enemy unprepared and nearly in a state of security. And here is the occasion for Pallas' mirror for it is common enough, before the danger presents itself, to see exactly into the state and posture of the enemy. But the principal use of the glass is, in the very instant of danger, to discover the manner thereof and prevent consternation, which is the thing intended by Perseus turning his head aside and viewing the enemy in the glass. Thus it is the excellence of a general early to discover what turn the battle is likely to take, and looking prudently behind, as well as before, to pursue a victory so as not to be unprovided for a retreat. Two effects here follow the conquest. One, the darting forth of Pegasus, which evidently denotes fame that flies abroad proclaiming the victory far and near the bearing of Medusa's head in the shield, which is the greatest possible defense and safeguard for one grand and memorable enterprise, happily accomplished, bridles all the motions and attempts of the enemy, stupefies disaffection, and quells commotions. 8. Endymion, or a favorite, explained of court, favorites. The goddess Luna is said to have fallen in love with the shepherd Endymion, and to have carried on her amours with him in a new and singular manner, it being her custom, whilst he lay reposing in his native cave under Mount Lotmus, to descend frequently from her sphere, enjoy his company whilst he slept, and then go up to heaven again. And all this while Endymion's fortune was no way prejudiced by his unactive and sleepy life, the goddess causing his flocks to thrive and grow so exceeding numerous that none of the other shepherds could compare with him. Explanation This fable seems to describe the tempers and dispositions of princes who, being thoughtful and suspicious, do not easily admit to their privacies such men as are prying, curious, and vigilant, or, as it were, sleepless, but rather such as are of an easy, obliging nature, and indulge them in their pleasures without seeking anything further, but seeming ignorant, insensible, or, as it were, lulled asleep before them. Princes usually treat such persons familiarly, and quitting their throne, like Luna, think they may with safety unbosom to them. This temper was very remarkable in Tiberius, a prince exceedingly difficult to please, and who had no favorites but those that perfectly understood his way, and at the same time obstinately dissembled their knowledge, almost to a degree of stupidity. The cave is not improperly mentioned in the fable, it being a common thing for the favorites of a prince to have their pleasant retreats, whither to invite him by way of relaxation, though without prejudice to their own fortunes, these favorites usually making a good provision for themselves. For though their prince should not perhaps promote them to dignities, yet, out of real affection. And not only for convenience, they generally feel the enriching influence of his bounty. It may be remembered that the Athenian peasant voted for the banishment of Aristides because he was called the just. Shakespeare forcibly expresses the same thought. Let me have men about me that are fat, sleek-headed men, and such as sleep o' nights. Yond Cassius has a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much. Much men, such men are dangerous. If Bacon had completed his intended work upon sympathy and antipathy, the constant hatred evinced by ignorance of intellectual superiority, originating sometimes in the painful feeling of inferiority, sometimes in the fear of worldly injury, would not have escaped his notice. 9. The Sister of the Giants, or Fame Explained of Public Detraction The poets relate that the giants produced from the earth made war on Jupiter, and the other gods, but were repulsed and conquered by thunder whereat the earth provoked, brought forth fame, the youngest sister of the giants, in revenge for the death of her sons. Explanation. The meaning of the fable seems to be this. The earth denotes the nature of the vulgar, who are always swelling and rising against their rulers, and endeavoring at changes. This disposition Getting a fit opportunity breeds rebels and traitors who, with impetuous rage, threaten and contrive the overthrow and destruction of princes. And when brought under and subdued, the same vile and restless nature of the people, impatient of peace, produces rumors, detractions, slanders, libels, and etc., to blacken those in authority so that rebellious actions and seditious rumors differ not in origin and stock, but only, as it were, in sex, treasons and rebellions being the brothers, and scandal or detraction, the sister. 10. Actaeon and Pentheus, or A Curious Man Explained of curiosity, or prying into the secrets of princes and divine mysteries. The ancients afford us two examples for suppressing the impertinent curiosity of mankind in diving into secrets, in imprudently longing and endeavoring to discover them. The one of these is in the person of Actaeon, the other in that of Pentheus. Actaeon, undesignedly chancing to see Diana naked, was turned into a stag and torn to pieces by his own hounds. And Pentheus, desiring to pry into the hidden mysteries of Bacchus' sacrifice, and climbing a tree for that purpose, was struck with a frenzy. This frenzy of Pentheus caused him to see things double, particularly the sun and his own city Thebes, so that running homewards and immediately espying another Thebes, he runs towards that, and thus continues incessantly, tending first to the one and then to the other without coming at either. Explanation The first of these fables may relate to the secrets of princes, and the second to divine mysteries, for they, who are not intimate with a prince, yet against his will, have a knowledge of his secrets, inevitably incur his displeasure. And therefore, being aware that they are singled out, and all opportunities watched against them, they lead the life of a stag full of fears and suspicions. It likewise frequently happens that their servants and domestics accuse them, and plot their overthrow in order to procure favor with the prince. For whenever the king manifests his displeasure, the person it falls upon must expect his servants to betray him, and worry him down, as Actaeon was worried by his own dogs. The punishment of Pentheus is of another kind, for they who, unmindful of their mortal state, rashly aspire to divine mysteries, by climbing the heights of nature and philosophy, here represented by climbing a tree, their fate is perpetual inconstancy, perplexity, and instability of judgment. For as there is one light in nature, and another light that is divine, they see, as it were, two suns, and as the actions of life and the determination of the will, depend upon the understanding, they are distracted as much in opinion as in will, and therefore judge very inconsistently or contradictorily. And see, as it were, Thebes double. For Thebes being the refuge and habitation of Pentheus, here denotes the ends of actions. Whence they know not what course to take, but remaining undetermined and unresolved in their views and designs, they are merely driven about by every sudden gust and impulse of mind. 11. Orpheus, or Philosophy Explained of Natural and Moral Philosophy Introduction The fable of Orpheus, though trite and common, has never been well interpreted and seems to hold out a picture of universal philosophy. For to this sense may be easily transferred what is said of his being a wonderful and perfectly divine person, skilled in all kinds of harmony, subduing and drawing all things after him by sweet and gentle methods and modulations. For the labors of Orpheus exceed the labors of Hercules both in power and dignity as the works of knowledge exceed the works of strength Fable Orpheus, having his beloved wife snatched from him by sudden death resolved upon descending to the infernal regions to try if by the power of his harp he could reobtain her and in effect, he so appeased and soothed the infernal powers by the melody and sweetness of his harp and voice, that they indulged him the liberty of taking her back, on condition that she should follow him behind, and he not turned to look upon her till they came into open day, but he, through the impatience of his care and affection and thinking himself almost past danger, at length looked behind him, whereby the condition was violated, and she again precipitated to Pluto's regions. From this time Orpheus grew pensive and sad, a hater of the sex, and went into solitude, whereby the same sweetness of his harp and voice he first drew the wild beasts of all sorts about him, so that, forgetting their natures, they were neither actuated by revenge, cruelty, lust, hunger, or the desire of prey, but stood gazing about him in a tame and gentle manner, listening attentively to his music. Nay, so great was the power and efficacy of his harmony That it even caused the trees and stones to remove and place themselves in a regular manner about him. When he had for a time, and with great admiration, continued to do this, at length the Thracian women, raised by the instigation of Bacchus, first blew a deep and hoarse sounding horn in such an outrageous manner that it quite drowned the music of Orpheus. And thus the power which, as the link of their society, held all things in order, being dissolved, disturbance reigned anew. Each creature returned to its own nature, and pursued and preyed upon its fellow, as before. The rocks and woods also started back to their former places. And even Orpheus himself was at last torn to pieces by these female furies, and his limbs scattered all over the desert. But in sorrow and revenge for his death, the river Helicon, sacred to the Muses, hid its waters underground and rose again in other places. Explanation The fable receives this explanation. The music of Orpheus is of two kinds, one that appeases the infernal powers and the other that draws together the wild beasts and trees. The former properly relates to natural and the latter to moral philosophy or civil society. The reinstatement and restoration of corruptible things is the noblest work of natural philosophy, and in a less degree, the preservation of bodies in their own state, or prevention of their dissolution and corruption. And if this be possible, it can certainly be effected no other way than by proper and exquisite atemperations of nature, as it were by the harmony and fine touching of the harp. But as this is a thing of exceeding great difficulty, the end is seldom obtained." and that probably for no reason other than a curious and unseasonable impatience and solicitude. And therefore philosophy, being almost unequal to the task, has cause to grow sad, and hence betakes itself to human affairs, insinuating into men's minds the love of virtue, equity, and peace by means of eloquence and persuasion thus forming men into societies, bringing them under laws and regulations, and making them forget their unbridled passions and affections, so long as they hearken to precepts and submit to discipline. And thus they soon after build themselves habitations, form cities, cultivate lands, plant orchards, gardens, and etc., so that they may not improperly be said to remove and call the trees and stones together and this regard to civil affairs is justly and regularly placed after diligent trial made for restoring the mortal body the attempt being frustrated in the end because the unavoidable necessity of death thus evidently laid before mankind animates them to seek a kind of eternity by works of perpetuity character and fame. It is also prudently added that Orpheus was afterwards averse to women and wedlock, because the indulgence of the married state and the natural affections which men have for their children often prevent them from entering upon any grand, noble, or meritorious enterprise for the public good, as thinking it sufficient to obtain immortality by their descendants without endeavoring at great actions. And even the works of knowledge, though the most excellent among human things, have their periods, for after kingdoms and commonwealths have flourished for a time, disturbances, seditions, and wars often arise, in the din whereof first the laws are silent and not heard." And then men return to their own depraved natures, whence cultivated lands and cities soon become desolate and waste. And if this disorder continues, learning and philosophy is infallibly torn to pieces, so that only some scattered fragments thereof can afterwards be found up and down in a few places like planks after a shipwreck. In barbarous times succeeding, the river Helicon dips underground. That is, letters are buried till things, having undergone their due course of changes, learning rises again and shows its head, though seldom in the same place, but in some other nation. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for seven seventy seven dollars per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.